John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed omnibus addenda volume 35 entry 786.zc0508 certificate number 25185 thomas midgley i hate to keep reviving zombie thomas midgley yeah one of the worst people of the 20th century the worst chemist ever uh, but we mentioned him on the previous agenda because someone wrote in with the theory that leaded gas is what caused sufficient sexual shame in our culture to put little stashes of pornography in in uh, in the woods, vacant lots around the American suburbs. That Do is, you recall this? That is uh, uh, lead gas's problem. Lead gas's fault. Yes, and therefore Thomas Midgley's fault. Right. He delivered he delivered porn to suburban woods because why? You don't remember the argument? I'm I'm still very sick. <laughs> uh, if I remember right, I think he he was just pointing out a date correlation that woods porn appears exactly oh. generationally exactly when leaded gas does and goes away exactly when it leaves. So perhaps uh, the adult adolescents of that generation were so screwed up sexually by all the leaded gas they were inhaling that they would buy porn. And then hate themselves and leave it in the woods. How, has has there been enough research into woods porn that it is a confirmed thing and not just something that that we made up? It's definitely not a thing we made up. Yeah. It is a cultural trope. Is there academic research? I don't know. There should be because the, this person is claiming that woods porn arrived one day. I always well, thought not at the same time. I I'm glad you that, said arrived and not came though. No, thank you. I I'm not a punster, as you know. I. I think that it's because prior to a certain point, there wasn't porn in magazine form. And then after a certain point, there wasn't porn in magazine form anymore. Right. But I think the the ages of woods porn are kind of limited to a, to a kind of Gen X part of that peak. I see. That, you know, woods, woods porn did not appear in 1959 when it could have. And it, and it wasn't there in 1999 when it still could have. It was 100% there in 1978. Right, let it guess. And it was 100% there in 1985. But leaving aside our previous correspondence conviction that this has something to do with Thomas Midgley and organic chemistry, uh, his conjecture inspired a note from Melissa, who has written to us before with her omnibus poem project. Yeah. Are you down with OPP? I am. Uh 
she we read a previous poem of hers about Paris syndrome and has a new poem she's proud enough to send in called Woods Porn. Okay. Should we read Melissa's latest work? I'm super ready. She says she has plenty of experience with Woods Porn in the, the Florida childhoods of her youth. Oh. The Florida childhoods of her youth? Yeah. That's a good name for a record. The Florida childhoods of her youth. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Florida childhoods. I don't remember talking about this with you. Did you ever find Woods Porn? Uh, we talked about this on the last addenda, and I said Korea insulated me from, oh. from Woods Porn. The Japanese cut down all the trees, and therefore... No place to hide porn. The Japanese also made all the porn. Yes, but they did it in the wrong order. They they were taking the Korean wood pulp over to Japan, mm. printing tentacle porn on it. But then there was no place for the poor Korean uh, colonized to uh, to hide there. That's too bad to hide their porn. Woods porn by Melissa. Those brave enough to penetrate razor fronds of the palmetto bush or the shack made of pallet wood in the cool wet evergreen forest or the plywood box dug deep into the dusty slit of the tornado ditch lining the fallow soybean fields, or any other derelict place where secrets are fertilized and watered. We'd follow the vague maps handed down to us from the teens now sated of the neighborhood. Instead of an X, we found a bloated mass of thick ridged paper accordioned with wet. The rule was you could not move it from its known location, only rub the pages together with gentle fingers until they loosened from one another, opening with the raspy sound of stiff paper. Once, we found a mostly intact centerfold inside the pulp. Fleshy maggots nibbled, swarmed, and writhed on the close-up photograph of the swirled pink topography of the entrance to a woman's body. Wow. It's good, right? Heavy. It is good. The twist at the end? Yeah. You know, the, the maggots? The, yeah. Because the poet throughout is, is not judgmental of the woods porn, but the maggots certainly provide a kind of a, ah. a, a judgment and revulsion. I'm interested to know that in Florida, the rule was you can't take the woods porn because that was not the rule in Alaska. In Alaska, it was first come, first serve. Finders, keepers. No, first come, first serve is funnier. Yeah, I guess it is. But you're not a punster. I'm very sick. Entry 733.2K0934. Certificate number 34884. London Bridge is down. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but there we we did have a recent update uh, on this topic. Yeah, and I said London Bridge is down, and then was immediately corrected by a dozen futurelings who said that if she dies in Scotland, it's a different thing. It's something else. Bag, yeah. Bagpipe Bridge is down. Or, yeah, something or else. And so, so London Bridge never came down. No, because London Bridge is down was only the term if she if died, she died in, in London. London. What if she dies in the Bahamas? Mm, the, Do they have, you know, mm, breadfruit bridges down or something? I don't know how many bridges there are in the Bahamas. No <sighs> Not big that many. bridges. Not that many. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the interesting thing that happened was the world... Mourned our queen? Well, the more interesting thing that happened was the world discovered the beehive tradition of a different oh, right. omnibus entry telling the bees. Right. That was, that was an exciting news. It made it all the way to the New York Times. Yeah. Which, so I think probably previously the population on earth that knew about telling the bees was largely composed of omnibus listeners. I think so. But now it's been multiplied a thousand fold by the, the paper of record explaining that when the queen dies, not of a beehive, but of the uh, Great Britain. times. Yeah. <laughs> that, that the royal hives are informed. I saw two different hot takes on it. One, not hot takes, but general takes on it. 
On the bees? On the telling the bees. That, one of that's them. too many takes. Yeah, well, I, I agree. One of them was, this is so quaint and so lovely and such an anachronistic and wonderful little detail. Just like the monarchy. Makes and, no sense, but for some reason, we're still doing it. Yeah. The other take was uh, more compatible with Marxism, which was, this is an anachronistic sham, further proof that the monarchy is uh, some kind of holdover from a distant time when oh. people believed in bees. Let me hold up my Yeah, sign. compatible with Marxism. But the beehive is a, is a monarchy. Yeah, the bees are long gone. Futurelings will know that this was the this was the last era of bees. I don't hear much about that anymore. Are bees still collapsing? Are colonies still collapsing? Well, I don't hear much about it anymore either. But there was some... sometimes that just means newer, worse things have replaced it. Not, the, not that the problem got fixed. Um, but but yeah, there were all kinds of like, can you believe? Can you believe that they're telling the bees when people are going hungry? And why did we ever go to space? Ask Whitey. The number of losses attributed to colony collapse disease, according to the EPA, has dropped from roughly 60% of total hives lost in 2008 to 30% in 2013. And there actually has not been new data since then. Oh, maybe they've been downgraded to least concern. That's that's what I want to be. Least concern? Yeah, like that's kind of my highest goal. Like yeah. in my family, in my community, I just want to be least concern. I got my blood pressure taken the other day. And it was the first time since I was in my 30s that it was, like, a great blood pressure. Oh, nice. Really perfect. Like, couldn't have been better on either angle. Systolic, diastolic, everything working for you. Everything working for me, and it was totally great, although I have been noticing a tendency to feel like I'm almost about to pass out. So maybe I needed a higher blood pressure just to get the blood up there to the... Were you already sick when they took your blood pressure? No, no, oh, it was okay. one of those, uh, it was, somebody had a blood pressure machine. I was like, Hey, let me, t- let me try that. And, uh, and it was like, Hey, that's great. Yeah. I've also hung out at the entrance of Fred Meyer, but yeah, no, no, this was somebody's home kit. Oh yeah. Home blood pressure machine. My son got one oh. because he was getting very low blood pressure results or no, he was getting very high blood pressure results. And, uh, apparently it's quite common for people to have elevated blood pressure just because they're getting their blood pressure taken. Right. And so you, the way you defeat that is get used to doing it at home. So he bought a Costco blood pressure cuff. Yeah, this person was like, uncross your legs. Okay, close your eyes and, you know, think of nice things. And I just had this great, it felt like such triumph because my blood pressure used to be like 2,000 over 1,000. Speaking of the bees, one more time, Alexander Petri, who writes the humor column in the Washington Post, which is actually funny, unlike, say, Andy Borowitz in the New Yorker. Okay. Uh... And I think I'm I'm loyal to Alexander because she's a former Jeopardy contestant. She wrote a very funny response from the bees upon learning that the queen was dead. And of course, they respond as bees were, which is like, well, which of your egg sacs is going to be primed with royal jelly to produce the new queen? The beehive is not ready for a, for a male drone to become queen, which is what happened, of course, in, in Britain right. uh, this month. You read the one where the the, the writer said... Woke culture has gone out of control so much that now there's a male queen. <laughs> I high-fived the air for that one. Entry 1136.PS1848. Certificate number 26181. Sergeant Stubby. 
This was our long ago show about war dogs, but Boy, we got, this goes back. It does all the way to 2021. But here's what happens: people who listen to the show come across something in daily life that reminds them of an omnibus from five years ago. I see. And the first thing they do, as they should, is to notify me. Yeah. Uh, via email. <laughs> Just so you know, here's a weird thing I found in a thrift store. Mm-hmm. Thank you, citizen. Michael uh, was on a motorcycle adventure and stopped in Lakewood, Ohio to see the grave of Smokey, the World War II war dog. Mm-hmm. I was not aware of Smokey's career, are you? No. Fascinating because he's a World War II heroic war dog who could fit in a GI helmet. A little tiny dog. He's a little Yorkie. A little pur- purse dog. In fact, the, the Yorkie was like not a popular dog in uh, the American on the American scene in the early 20th century, and Smokey kind of brought back Yorkies. And so what was uh, Smokey's job in the war? Smokey appears to have been well-decorated for not doing all that much. I mean, yeah. I hate to say this. We're going to put... Uh, Michael took some great photos of, of Smokey's memorial, which calls him Yorkie Doodle Dandy. Oh, dear. Um, it appears to be mostly a USO kind of a propaganda war that Smokey fought. That feels like something you would say. There's a statue of him, sit, of uh, Yorkie, sitting in a little Sergeant Rock helmet with plenty of room left over. You could probably, It looks like you could fit maybe three Yorkies in this helmet, although the ASPCA might not like it. Uh, uh, horky, dorky, and smorky. Yeah, smorky? by tradition, all yeah. Yorkshire Terriers are given names that rhyme with Yorkie. A lot of people don't know that. So they, this wasn't some tunnel dog that some ratter that they put down in and uh, like scared the Germans out of their tunnels. Smokey was discovered in a abandoned foxhole in New Guinea in 1944. Oh, oh so sending it like into the into the tunnels of Iwo Jima. Well, uh, it's uh, Yorkie uh, Smokey. I'm calling him Smorky now, thanks to you. Smorky. Smorky's origin appears to be a bit of a mystery. They assumed it was a Japanese dog, but Smorky did not respond to comments in Japanese or English. Hmm. So apparently how how a Yorkshire Terrier got to the foxholes of New Guinea remains a mystery. But, Ufos. But Pacific, you know, U.S. troops in the Pacific packed Smokey around, you know, because it's so tiny, because she was so tiny, they could just keep Smokey in a backpack or basically a little, a baby Bjorn thing um my sense of seeing yorkies in public coming out sticking their heads out of purses is that they do not respond to commands in english or japanese even today we had a yorkie when i was a kid and that is certainly true certainly he did not respond to stop peeing on the carpet right except possibly to pee harder so i guess there's plenty of smoky is credited with 12 combat missions and awarded eight battle stars made making 150 air raids on new guinea and in fact once parachuted 30 feet out of a tree using parachute made just for her. See, this sounds like you shouldn't... So it sounds like somebody honestly just threw a Yorkshire Terry out of a tree. Yeah. And possibly should not have done so. With one of those toy parachutes that you used to get in bubblegum machines. Exactly. But I, you know, to, to take G.I. Joe off, kids, if you have one of these, take the little doll off, put your mom's little lap dog on, and see what happens. Yeah. Send the dog down the laundry chute. What could go wrong? Uh, no, don't do that. But apparently, because the dog was so small, you know, you could just pack her into your backpack or whatever. And so Smokey was in the heart of the action, uh, no matter where. Hmm. And later became a, you know, became a beloved symbol of the unit. Once saved, uh, who is the owner here? Once saved, Sergeant Rock. 
Corporal William Wynn of Cleveland, which is, I assume, why the memorial is in Lakewood, Ohio, once saved Wynn's life. By how? Um, well, wait. Was Smokey wearing a pocket watch that stopped the bullet? <laughs> Smokey stopped the bullet, unfortunately. No, Smokey warned him of incoming shells. Because hmm. uh, Smokey, I guess, felt the vibration first and hit the deck. Oh, so Smokey wasn't like, yip, yip, yip. No, it, it was more like, I, I feel the vibrations first because I have dog ears. Right, so I'm going underground and yeah. you, can, you can decide for yourself. Smokey became a popular entertainer in hospitals from Australia to Korea, became a national sensation by doing uh, tricks once she came back home, including walking on a tightrope while blindfolded. Hmm. I wow. mean, for a, I can't imagine teaching a Yorkshire Terrier to do anything, much less walk on a tightrope blindfolded. I would pay 25 cents to see that. Anyway, the pictures of the Smokey Memorial are very cute, and there's a... Uh, instructional placard there of the kind that you and I enjoy, uh, profiling other U.S. heroic war dogs, and Stubby got a mention. Uh, nice. Uh, we'll put that on the Patreon. Thank you for sending us that, Michael. Entry 1095.LK0852. Certificate number 35676. Safety Coffins. Another old show, but not everyone is listening in perfect synchrony. Right. Some from some from the distant past, some from hundreds of years in the future. Who knows? Apparently, at some point there, we mentioned of all the different contraptions that were placed in coffins to possibly uh, revive anybody who'd been buried prematurely, there were uh, some kind of butt bellows used. Do you have any memory of... Uh, of any kind of rectally inserted bellows appearing in this butt entry? bellows? No, I do not. But Matt is a doctor. I would use a bugle if I were going to to wake the dead. If I were going to have a butt uh, signaling device, butt are, bugle. Are you saying you would bugle out of your butt? I'm assuming that's what do you the have, bellows. Do you is. have sufficient control? Unless the bellows is putting air in the butt. There is a, uh, in Dante's Inferno, uh, Dante does meet a demon called Malakota who summons the cavalry of hell by placing a bugle against his uh, sphincter. Can you imagine the level of control? Because you don't, I mean, bugle is hard enough to get multiple notes out, uh, out of anyway. Yeah, from from the mouth. You'd have to be able to, to affect various puckers. Matt uh, explains that blowing tobacco smoke into one's rectum was once thought to be a way to resuscitate people. Oh, oh. And it's not wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that would wake a bunch of people up if you, if you literally blew smoke up their ass. I would be, I would bet that a long time before you put the smoke in there, mm. they would already be awakened by the whole, by the first stages of the process. Yeah, the smoke's more for me. The smoke's, the smoke's just kind of, the smoke's some fun. Yeah. Um, the story Matt tells about this is that this was such common knowledge that this is how you, this is how you wake somebody up, that bellows were placed along the Thames River in case uh, somebody needed to be pulled out and resuscitated. So, you know, just like the life-saving kits we have today, there would be bellows there. So if you pulled somebody out of the river, you could immediately start 
blowing some smoke into their backside, pumping up their backside. How many times did this actually happen? I have to wonder. And well, like, it, like a lot of infrastructure projects, you know, they were probably all installed at once and then immediately fell into disrepair, found not to be useful. It delights me to think, though, that it is possible that this happened more than once, that they pulled a dead person out of the Thames and immediately before any other remedy started blowing smoke in their butt. Is it funnier if this is a person who has actually been dead for days and they're just, they're just futilely pumping away? I mean, any amount of dead... And this just, I mean, it just fills me with, with joy. And I mean, it's been a long time, so so it's not, I don't feel like it's it's disrespectful to the dead anymore. I wonder if they I feel like blowing smoke up your butt is more disrespectful. I mean, just having a bellows doesn't necessarily get smoke. Did the person have to provide their own smoke? Or yeah, everybody had a, had a pipe at the time. It's true that if you fall in the Seine River, somebody's going to be smoking there right. to, so that they can just, you know... They can just give a little blow. You don't need bellows in France. It feels like a thing where they probably put little pouches of tobacco, but then all of, like, anybody walking by was like, I'll just take that resuscitatory tobacco. Save me save me a couple of pence. Entry 447.MK0737. Certificate number 25222. Facilitated communication. I Boy, think this was this was tough. This was a this sad. I'm not sure this is the actual entry. At some point, we were discussing uh, a pseudoscience of the past, and I think it was in this show where we were mentioning um, that there was vaccine opposition from the very beginning. As long right. as there have been vaccines, right? There have been people saying, <laughs> "Well, I'm not rump for rump. I'm not doing that." That's how the Chinese put microscopic tracer elements into your brain. To get you to buy Kellogg cereal. We heard from a listener named Joey who wanted to make the point, and I think there's quite a bit of merit here, that the early anti-vax movements, um, he, uh, he finds them a lot more sympathetic than the anti-vaccination crowd today um, just because of the difference in medical science then and now. You know, I guess... From our modern point of view, the fact that eugenics was so prevalent in medicine, you know, a hundred years ago or more, um, and, the, and the and the fact that a lot of people were using med, you know medical science in the name of just kind of terrible human rights violations, you know, all the people who were st- forcibly sterilized, for example, because doctors were nodding their heads and being like, "Well, sure, science, syphilis." So you know, in that kind of environment. You know, who would trust a government-led, you know, just inject this less potent pathogen into your body. I, I promise, I promise it's good. And and he says that often the the early anti-vaxxers were the anti-eugenics people oh. who were like, hell no, you know, like they're the heroes of please stop sterilizing people. It's funny to think that there was a moment of peak science when the greatest number of people believed in science to the greatest degree. End of July 1969. And Apollo that's right. 11. That's right. And then and it's after all been that, downhill since then. <laughs> I mean, you'd think it's all complicated by the atomic age. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of our, you know, at least from the point of view of the intelligentsia, a lot of science skepticism was born in 1945 at, at Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. Yeah, moral... 
like there's a lot of moral skepticism, but in terms of actually questioning whether science whether it, is real. Whether it exists. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I feel like that's think, more of a moral majority yeah, era thing. We, we all agree that uh, uh, atomic energy works yes. for better or for worse. But are we doing well with it? Right. So Joey's point is like, you know, leave the leave the early anti-vaxxers alone. They, you know, they're not just kind of early mega types. Sure. They were, they were part of the underground railroad. Right. But I guess, you know, as I thought about this, I thought, I mean, honestly, you hear the same rhetoric today when you talks about, when you hear about different kinds of vaccine skepticism, for example, in African American communities, there's still a real legacy of, Oh no, you know, we're not, you know, we know what happened the last time we let the government, you know, try stuff out on us. We're, you know, we're not doing that. Um, so the authority mistrust is maybe the same on both sides. It's just whether or not we think the reason accords with common sense or not. And, you know, you and I might have more sympathy for, for certain communities that are like, well, I don't know about vaccines than others, but I don't know. I, I, maybe the strategies you could use to, to persuade them are different. It's, it's understandable, but at the same time, there's the there's the vaccine and it, it and it works and so yeah the the authority issue gets used a lot um to defend like a, a doctrine of no snitching or to say i mean there are a lot of right there are a lot of things that are complicated by the fact that different communities have different relationships to the police but if you're going to try and solve a crime it's helpful if there are witnesses. So it's, yeah. It's, it, the data I've read on vaccination in particular says that you really can't convince the Bill Gates is going to put a chip in me crowd. No. Whereas there has been specific outreach to, you know, historically marginalized communities to be like, you got questions about the vaccine? I totally get that. Here's, here's what we're going to do. And they've got, you know, messages tailored to those communities about here's why it's safe. Here's look at the look who look who took it. Look at you know. We're not trying to kill you. Yeah. We're not trying this to t- get this you time, addicted to crack. It all says this time at the mm-hmm. end, which is you know I guess what we're down to. When, um, when but, the, but it's it's been effective. I went to a uh, I was part of the Duwamish River Coalition for a while, and every one of the meetings, uh, they were trying to convince people to stop eating seafood taken from the Duwamish River because the number, the quantity of heavy metals and toxic <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, that mud. would be a very easy ask for me. Right. But the Vietnamese and Laotian communities oh, and they Hispanic get, they communities- They go get carp down there. Oh, they love it, you know, because right. it's like, it's easy fishing. Let's make some catfish hot pot. But what was crazy is at all of these meetings, there was all this material in Spanish and in Vietnamese, uh, and there were no Spanish-speaking or Vietnamese people at the meetings. They were just all- concerned white people in, in uh, Patagonia jackets. <laughs> so we still had a little bit of an outreach problem. Eventually, I think the message got out. Joey and I had an interesting kind of back and forth on the thing. And then he says he's on his way to law school, and but he's not sure whether or not that's compatible with Marxism. Law school? Do we have a ruling? I think mm, law school is compatible with Marxism. You just have to use you your to... skills in service of, of uh, universal justice. And not in just go go make a bunch of money. It turns out that some lawyers do represent unsavory characters, but he could just represent the uh, labor unions and environmentalists. 
I, I am somebody who does not believe that the United States of America is intrinsically a white supremacist capitalist enterprise. But do you believe that about the American Bar Association? <sighs> Tough call. Yeah, that is a tougher call. <laughs> I be- I do not believe it about the AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. You, uh, their magazine has convinced you? Their magazine has convinced me that they are not compatible with Marxism. Oh, I see. White, white pants, not compatible with Marxism. Mm-hmm. Entry 779.PR2513. Certificate number 42914. A message to Garcia. When we recorded this in early summer, I would not have thought that this of all omnibus topics would become relevant again in 2022. This is a, a kind of an early piece of business writing from uh-huh. the early 20th century based on inaccurate history of, uh, of a, a Cuban uh, uprising. Yes. Um, which has then been deployed by corporations and the military by the tens of millions since then to persuade workers that they just need to listen up to the boss. Get back to work. Get back to work. Uh, The week before this entry was released, the New York Times ran an article headlined, Why City Workers in New York Are Quitting in Droves. Are Uh, they quiet quitting or were they real quitting? They're real quitting because the new mayor of New York is a bit of a nutball. Yeah. Uh, here's a quote from the article. Another city official who recently left said that Mayor Adams and top officials in his administration had created a work environment where independent thought was discouraged and obedience to directives was valued. Hmm. The official said a tipping point was reached when Mr. Carone, the mayor's chief of staff, assigned staffers to read an 1899 essay called A Message to Garcia as part of a staff book club. Whoa. The essay features an underling who is instructed to dutifully deliver a letter without asking any idiotic questions. Can you imagine you go to your work book club and the mayor's chief of staff is like, hey, why don't you read this story about how you should shut up and, and do what I say? Yeah. The, the, you know, the is c- it a mandatory book club? <laughs> Civil service in New York was too woke, Ken, <laughs> and it was time to bring him back in line. Did you see Adams uh, make that disparaging comment about Kansas the other day? And no. What did he say? He said something like, New York's got a cool brand. We're New York. And, you know, what does Kansas have? Nothing. <laughs> wow. So was it? Did it seem that uh, superfluous? Yeah, it was just he was just using. I think he was just off the cuff using Kansas as a, uh, a as place a punching that's bag. Not as good as New York. What's hilarious is that the governor of Kansas wrote back on Twitter some like you know what he thought was a zinger. But I'm sure it was some awful like. Well, at least nobody's getting shot like on. It was. Like on your streets. It was, and a lot of people replied with, of course, statistics showing that the murder rate in Kansas is way higher than New York City. That's why Dorothy left. But the first line he led with, in Kansas, we go to the, uh, we go, what what, what did he say? Something like, we go on toilets. Oh, I did see that. Yeah, something like we use the potty, (laughs) and it was the craziest like self own um, that I'd ever seen. I disagree. Congrats to Kansas for going on the potty chair like big boys. Yeah. Entry six seven three dot lk one two one eight certificate number four eight four eight one Jobbers Canyon. Even better than when people spy omnibus content in the wild and send to us 
to me is when people actually change their itinerary to see omnibus content. Oh, was somebody on their way from Des Moines to uh, Sioux Falls and they were like, I got to go through Omaha. Kevin was en route to Omaha for business and happened to be listening to the Jobbers Canyon and thought, I'm going to go check it out. So he headed down there and sent us some uh, photos of what's going on uh, in the former Jobbers Canyon now, which we'll put on the Patreon. What's it look like? Construction is ongoing. There is kind of one old building left, um, kind of a, a remnant of what could have been. And then you can see that the whole area is being redeveloped, as we discussed in the episode, to kind of build the new, um, you know, yuppie hipster magnet kind of uh, apartment buildings with Pilates gyms and coffee shops on the lower floor. Are they emulating old Jobbers Canyon architecture? No, uh. that's the problem. Like these people would have killed to have that architecture there to move their coffee shop and uh, Bon Mi restaurant and for sure Pilates gym into. But instead, they're building all these little ugly five story things next door Blah. with names like the Brick Line, Blah. you know, luxury luxury apartments. And there's kind of one old cool brick building next door. Um, I mean, the one thing in their favor is that they don't, in the winter, have to stand there heating their whole uninsulated space with one Resner, like gas burning super super blower. It is an interesting question. I don't know if we considered in that entry, which is how much overhauling would have had to happen to those buildings to make them ready for um, upscale tenants. That's the thing. They're they're ideal for artists who like who incorporates suffering into their work week or, you know, it's part of the whole romantic artist life, but somebody that's working in a tech company doesn't want, doesn't want to huddle underneath a Resner. I was reading Chris France's book the other day, the drummer for the talking heads. Yes. And it's a lot of stories from the early days about when he and Tina, the, you know, the love of his life and, you know, God's greatest creation. Love of my life too. She's amazing, but she, uh, they have to share an apartment with David Byrne. Very talented, but I think nobody would argue the world's easiest roommate. Was there a lot of shit talking about David Byrne? Because I'm here for it. <laughs> it's pretty good. There's there's some amazing stories. There's a story of them trying to play that um, murderer game with David Byrne, where you you kill people by blinking at them. Have oh. you ever played a variant oh, of this? and then you have to figure out who the murderer yeah, who it is. is. Yeah. And the game doesn't work because David Byrne is incapable of making eye contact with anyone. So as soon as he becomes the murderer, 10 minutes go by and nobody dies. And then they figure out what's up. He can't look at anybody. But just plenty of stories of him, like, moving someone out. They come back from their honeymoon, and David Byrne has moved someone, a friend, into their apartment just because she needed a place to stay. Uh, he takes credit for lyrics he didn't write. That all checks out. Chris and Tina said they've never once heard him give credit to to anyone else in the band for literally anything. Like, you'll never find an interview where he says... That was a cool keyboard part that Jerry came up with. Or Interesting. I guess it just doesn't happen. But the idea of them all living together in this freezing loft in what was then the Bowery, I guess, uh, at a time when, you know, it was, it was kind of cool and you might see, I don't know, Jasper Johns or Jerry Hall at the coffee shop, but also um, you're all huddled around, you're all, you know, making coffee from a... Right. Uh, I don't know, like on, a, like on a, some kind of kerosene tank. Yeah. Uh, it sounded great, but you know, the days. I guess that's why we, that's why there's no good music anymore. I used to everybody's got central heating in a, in a loft with no 
no plumbing and a Resner heater. Um, yeah, those were the days. Do you feel like your uh, art was better then? I think my art was indisputably better then. I don't know if the two are connected. You could just go home and turn down the thermostat and see what happens. I do. I keep the thermostat low because I'm a because I'm a descendant of Quakers. <laughs> it would be you feel it would be immoral yeah. to be sixty. Not 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 because of the fuel that's being used. But because of the sinful thoughts you could have if the temperature got up to the high 60s? That's, that's exactly right. If you're warm, what does that do? It leads to self-fornication. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Some would say cold. No. If you're, if you're you got, cold. You got, you got to start rubbing something to keep warm. If you're cold, you just, you, uh, there's no, you have no desire to touch yourself. You just, um, you just write Psycho Killer and mm-hmm. another early new wave classics. Entry 1261.mk0118, certificate number 27789, The Swamp Dragons. This was the New Jersey Nets uh, contemplating changing their name to something crazy just to sell more merch. Uh, Ian wrote in that this, uh, this is something I don't believe we mentioned in the entry, but Ian writes that this is a, a thing that is currently happening in sports, specifically in minor league baseball. What? In minor, Leave minor league baseball alone. Well, for minor league, the stakes are so low that nobody really cares if you rename your team something goofy if, if, uh, if jersey sales go up 15%. Oh, I see. To people who, would, you know, who don't care who's playing for the Binghamton Mets, but if the team is called the Binghamton Rumble Ponies, okay. apparently a reference to Binghamton's uh, historical connections to the carousel industry. Interesting. Is a rumble pony a merry-go-round horse? I guess it must be. It sounds like kind of a hanky code thing. Rumble pony. Hey, if you're a rumble pony, show me the show me the orange hanky. That's right. Uh, rumble ponies only. It's rumble pony night. So it's quite common. I believe wasn't there some um, wasn't there some team that renamed themselves the Trash Pandas just because um, they knew they would sell? Because they listened to Omnibus. Because <laughs> they listened to Omnibus. Uh, Ian sent us a list. The New Orleans Zephyrs are now the New Orleans Baby Cakes. Well, yeah, I could see Zephyrs. You know, my high school newspaper was called the Zephyr. I drove a, my parents drove a Mercury Zephyr when oh. I was a kid. Zephyr, called, Zephyr, the Zephyr had a real boom in popularity it, in the yes, in it did. late 20th century. Are you saying that baby cakes is a thing that's going to sell merch? Do you know why New Orleans would have a team called the baby cakes? No. It's the thing you find in your Mardi Gras cake. You find a little plastic figurine of a baby. Oh. But because the name is funny and goofy, then then you get... Press ink on. You'll never guess what New Orleans' AAA team is called now. Uh, you know, rejoin us after these words, and then then you can sell baby cakey stuff. The mascot can be a goofy-looking baby. You know, it's... Is Ebbets Field making a bunch of merch for all these things? Like they do, you know, the Japanese baseball stuff that right. they make with the kitty cats and... The crazy, the crazy mascot that yeah. you always see. Um, the San Antonio missions have renamed themselves the Amarillo, they've, apparently they've moved to Amarillo, but now they're the Amarillo sod poodles, mm-hmm. which I guess is maybe a frontier era term for prairie dogs. Sod poodle. It's the trash panda. Trash panda is to raccoon as sod poodle is to prairie dog. A, a prairie dog does not resemble a poodle in any way. Sod no, poodle. but I'm just saying there's kind of a, a cringy dog kind of millennial Oh. Or, or, you know, a meme slang for the animal. Is it doge? I always say doge. I don't know. Venice has a doge. Do, but dogecoin instead of dogecoin? I think I must have said dogecoin during our during our um, recent recording of the Bitcoin. It must be. Pizza day. Well, that episode came out and nobody complained about it. 
Oh, they complained about every other aspect Do- of it. Dogecoin, according to its founder, is correctly pronounced Dogecoin. Okay. But plenty of people say Dogecoin, and some say Doggy Coin. Oh, dear. That's not, you wouldn't, there's one G. That's Stop it. That's insanity. Uh, the Jacksonville Suns are now the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, because ha-ha. Sure. Uh, the Akron Arrows are now the Akron Rubber Ducks. Oh, here it is. The Yeah, the Mobile Alabama Bay Bears moved to Huntsville and are now the Rocket City Trash Pandas. So the whole name, it's not even the Huntsville Trash Pandas, it's Rocket City Trash Pandas in hopes of... That's pretty hot. Yeah, it sounds like a roller derby team, Hunts, right? Huntsville has every right to be called Rocket City. And then most famously, uh, you know, the Springfield... You remember the episode of The Simpsons where the Springfield isotopes are going to move... The town's baseball team is going to move to Albuquerque? The Simpsons... You, you don't know this episode. I have not watched every Simpsons episode like a lot of our listeners. Well, this one's... This one's 21 years old, at least. I can't remember what season that is. Uh, the But in real life, the Albuquerque minor league team changed their name to the Isotopes in order to... And now they're the... At the time they did it, they were the highest selling minor league team, like by a factor of 10. Merch. Yeah, saying. because Simpsons fans would, not oh. from Albuquerque, would want a cap that said Albuquerque Isotopes. And other teams noticed, and that's what led to this trend. I went online not very long ago looking for some, um, like, Pasco, Kennewick, Longview High School, Newcomb High. Wait, is that the name of the high school? No, the... After Duke Newcomb? No, the, the Kennewick Bombers, right? Oh, Isn't that what it was? Okay. Um, because their old, their old logo was really not pulling any punches, um in terms of being a giant mushroom cloud on the back of their letter jackets. And I, oh, of, I'm sorry, not Kennewick, Richland. The Richland That bombers. makes more sense because, yeah. what, is that closer to Hanover? So if you, Hanover, I mean. Or sorry, uh, well, this Hanfield. Is, this, no. Mitchfield. No. Richfield. No. Han- Hanson. Han- Hamburger. Hanford. Hanford. We got there. There we go. This is our, this is our local our local area and we're just so anyway the richland bombers letter jacket used to have a mushroom cloud on it and it actually says nukem on the inside and i was trying to get one of those just to wear around but i i couldn't find one that was that fit they don't sell them anymore or i think they probably mellowed out their whole nukem vibe but I still think that i still think their mascot is a mushroom cloud the mariner single a affiliate in Modesto, California is, and I don't think this is any kind of new attempt at uh, virality, is the Modesto Nuts. Sure. I assume just because it's almond country or, or whatever Pistachios there. there. Oh, pistachios. That, yeah. that makes more sense. So I've always wanted to go to a Modesto Nuts game. I, I hope they don't change the Tacoma team, the Rainiers, to anything but the Rainiers. <sighs> I mean, that are... Is so iconic in the Northwest because of the association with Rainier Beer. Yeah, I would not like to lose that. They they put the did they, am I right? They put the R back on the old Tully's. They did. Uh, they did. They what took what, the what tea was the down. Rainier Brewery had a T for a long time, which was irritating because a coffee company had moved in. Uh, Colin wrote in because we talked about teams being relocated and specifically the the generational trauma in Cleveland from the Browns decamping to Baltimore, mm-hmm. he had a follow-up story about the Columbus Crew, the Columbus's soccer team, owned by the same group 
that owned the Browns where uh, the crew had been purchased by a new owner uh, who clearly wanted to move the team to Austin. He was an oil guy, and he had put a clause in that said he could move the tech team to Austin anytime. Um, and MLS is a single entity league. I didn't know this. The league itself owns every team. The owners are Whoa. are basically investor operators. Whoa. Which I guess is true. So I guess that's true of the Sounders. Like uh, Drew Carey et al. are just investor operators of, of the MLS teams. So basically he immediately, so he had exclusive rights to Austin by virtue of having this line in his contract. The story broke in Ohio that um, the new owner was, in fact, going to move the team. The city attorney of Columbus, Ohio, and the state attorney general, uh, now governor, Mike DeWine, found out that after Art Modell moved the Browns away, the state of Ohio had passed some kind of um, um, uh, aggrieved law stating that you couldn't move a team out of Ohio. It was, it was almost unenforceable, basically. Probably illegal law saying that any team that accepted public funds from Ohio could not relocate the team unless you gave the money back. Yeah, or unless you unless you gave the the state the opportunity to purchase the team. Like oh. Ohio would have right of first refusal, basically, to any team movement. Which interesting. So even if the law is not any good, it let them file a lawsuit, um, creating a legal hassle for MLS and the new owner into a long and troublesome discovery phase. Um, Here's to Ohio. Given the extra time, the suit dragged on for months, giving the city of Columbus time to locate a new buyer that would build a stadium, and the case was settled one year later, and a new team started in Austin, and the crew got to stay in Ohio, and last or two years ago won the MLS Cup. There you go. So a happy story about a team not moving, although... The last time a city was screwed over by this, it was in fact Seattle. Yes, which had a, which had um, thought they had uh, an agreement to bring the Sacramento Kings here. Unfortunately, I believe the mayor of Sacramento at the time was former NBA star Kevin Johnson, who did not want the Kings to leave, and they did the same kind of last-minute legal shenanigans and were able to submarine the sale. But yeah, you know, I wouldn't have felt good right about turning the Kings into the Sonics. The Kings have enough problems. Seattle gets the shaft over and over. Over and over. Now you're, you're bearing the lead that you went to a uh, major league soccer game only last night. I, not 12 hours ago, I was with your family at the game. You, I was, you bailed due to sickness. I was too sick, but you took my mom, my sister, and my daughter to a soccer game. Me and your mom are kind of, are kind of dating now. Yeah, you guys have a lot in common. Actually, in terms of your spectrum personalities, <laughs> they left early. I can't remember if it was Mar- if it was your kid or your mom, but somebody was ready to go early. So my mom wrote me last night and said, because I said, "How did you do at the soccer game?" And she said, "The views were incredible, and we could clearly see all the plays on the field." <laughs> That's what you want at a sporting event. Yeah. You know what you like is to Incredible be able to plays. see the plays on the field. Uh, my daughter wanted to leave. This is, I, uh, she didn't say my daughter. Her I'm granddaughter. Pu- I'm putting, uh, our, my granddaughter wanted to leave, but I could have easily stayed to the end. How ironic if I start to enjoy sports. This would be crazy if your mom turns over a new leaf now at age. 88. And becomes a proud 
Seattle Sounders fan wearing her scarf and her jersey and standing up for the full 90 minutes banging on some kind of a South American drum. I said, the secret is to go to sporting events with Ken Jennings. Because I make it so fun? You do. You make it fun. Well, they, I was doing the scarf ceremony before the game, so they gave us a sweet. In which, by the way, your kid promptly ate all the pretzel bites. Yeah. The one snack that apparently they were not going to refill. She Zoom called me last night because I was laying in my sick bed, and she said, I got there early, and I took all the pretzel bites. <laughs> and I was like, that's not how you... When someone invites you to their soccer suite, you don't take all the pretzel bites, sweetie. And she was like, but you don't understand. They were they were limited number of pretzel bites. They, it's true. She was not wrong. They ended up refilling all the other things. The nachos they refilled, the kettle chips and the popcorn they refilled. But apparently pretzel bites are one to a customer. My little kid is such a such a thiever. Anyway, so they loved the game. And, and they said that your scarf-waving part of the ceremony did not seem long enough to have justified them giving you a whole suite at the soccer game. I think that's not wrong, but attendance was not through the roof, let's say. Oh, I, I think they all had, those games were sold out. Generally, I think the Sounders have a very have a great draw, but I think this is a midweek game at the end of the season and kind of their first not great season in a few years and it was it was a little sparse. They oh, must have had bad. they must have had suites to spare. Uh but uh, your family, I think, did not know that I was not going to be like at center pitch holding up the scarf because they could not find me. I guess they saw me on the Jumbotron, but I told your them sister was very excited to take a picture of me and then uh, apparently couldn't find me. Yeah, I told them that you were going to do a header to open the game. So like, they thought I was actually going to do some ceremonial kickoff, which yeah, does not exist. You're going to do a corner kick to, to begin the game. Because you were pranking them and they didn't know. I pranked them a little bit. We also got a note from... Oh, and I, it, during the Swamp Dragon show, I was trying to... I, I thought that all basketball players had to wear jerseys with numbers one through five, although I remembered that there were zeros, and yeah. I couldn't figure out how that worked. And Owen, I think, is maybe the second person to email us clarifying that high school and college players only wear the digits one through five. Oh. Because then the referees can do this, assuming they have all 10 figures, I guess. You're, you're holding up your hands to indicate what the refs do. Right. If one there's, if, on if one there's hand, a foul, five. they can hold up a number of fingers. But the NBA has no such rule. You know, famously, Dennis Rodman wore 91, 73, and 70. He, in fact, he lists for me the great NBA players who wore digits above five. I don't know how interested you are. Let's hear them. Ron Artest, 93. George Mikan, 99. Vladimir Radmanovich, 77. Sean Bradley, 76, because he was 7'6". Yeah. Uh, uh, what, what was uh, Michael Jordan? It was 33? 33, yeah. yeah. And I think the reason why you see it, you don't see it very often is because, because it's 1 through 5 at the high school and college, or 0 through 5 at the high school and college level, people will continue to wear their old, number. their old numbers or the number of an idol, of a hero of theirs. So it be, kind of becomes a self-perpetuating thing where... Few venture beyond the one through five. But if I gave the impression that six through nine were verboten on NBA jerseys, I deeply regret that. No one would probably wear 88 these days. Because it's bad luck in China? No, because it's a it's a Heil Hitler. Oh, right. It's actually good luck in China. It's bad luck oh. if you're if you're anti-white supremacy. It's as bad luck if you're anti-white supremacy. I guess so, yeah. I mean, if you're an, if you're a Nazi, then eighty eight's good luck, right? Right, right. But 
But yeah, it's it felt like a double negative, which it is. You're anti-white supremacists who are not if you're anti-antifa, no, or fa as we call it. Do we call it fa? I don't not, have a nickname for antifa. Not no for anti-antifa. Oh oh, I see what you're saying. The two antis cancel themselves yeah. out, and it just becomes fa. It just becomes fa. Not the soup, but right. the uh, but fascism. But the fascism. Yeah. Entry 351.EZ1415, certificate number 51283, the Dingo Fence. Or maybe not the Dingo Fence. What show do you think we mentioned scurvy in recently? Huh. I, I could not come up with a better candidate than this Let's one. Let's call Dingo Fence. If, if you want to talk about the culture of Australia, it has to, at least in some part, have been the result of scurvy. Here's the note from Chrissy. Tell John I tried to get rid of scurvy by licking my rabbit's nose. This must have been something you said on the air. A whimsical flight of fancy for you, perhaps, but it actually led to poor Chrissy's rabbit getting its nose licked. So I suggested on a show that we can't recall that a cure for scurvy might be to, to lick a lick rabbit's a nose. a rabbit's nose. Chrissy tried it out in the wild. Okay. Well, not in the wild. It's a pet, but in the field. My rabbit just got pissed at me, gave me an FU, and is now mad at me. Wow. The worst part of all this, I still have scurvy. Oh, no. If you're wondering how a rabbit says FU, uh, she says it's by hopping away and flicking their back feet. That oh, seems right. That's, yeah. That scans. I mean, I thought it would be that they would swim and attack you as you were fishing. That's how, that's how they say FU to Jimmy Carter. Yeah. But, uh, but an Australian rabbit, that's no ordinary rabbit. Isn't Jimmy Carter turning like 98 this month yeah, or something? Yeah, he's really, he's really still cooking, still cooking. Still cooking? Is that the expression? Yep. An elderly person is still cooking. Still cooking. Uh, yes. In fact, the day after this uh, addenda is released, I believe, will be Jimmy Carter's. How, how do you plan to celebrate President Carter's 98th birthday? Uh, by putting solar panels on my roof and painting my house white. Wow. Yeah. No, by driving 55. That's how I'm going to celebrate Jimmy Carter. <laughs> You're going to turn your thermostat down to keep the urges down. I am. And, and also to drive, celebrate President Carter. Drive 55, and I'm going to initiate talks with, with the Iranians. Egypt and Israel? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I could have an Egyptian friend and an Israeli friend over. And you could serve them hummus, which they agree on. Yep. Get them to shake hands. Or, or peanut butter to celebrate President Carter. That's kind of the hummus of, of, uh, of the South. Peanut butter, yeah. Right. Yeah. I just learned the other day... That uh, white supremacists say peanut butter is a recipe, not an invention. Because, of course, it was invented, peanut butter was invented by an African-American. Oh, I see. To minimize George Washington Carver's inventiveness, peanut they're saying, no, 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 it's just a recipe. This is just the, this is the stuff that you learn when you go back on Twitter after having been gone for a long time and you forget that. You forget how to curate your feed. Do they do this with every African-American invention? Are they like, the super soaker is not even a good uh, water gun? It's not, even a, it's not even a soaker. It's not even super. I don't know. I don't follow, like, uh, I don't follow the white supremacist nomenclature that closely. But I really love the whole uh, way that they just can't. Are, ha- they just can't handle the idea that... Um, like a black person could think about peanut butter. I started following a, a feed called Conservative Self Owns. Oh, I like that. I like that. Twitter and uh, and it's really introducing me to a whole new way of thinking. 
I'm now looking through a great list of um, African-American inventions, including automatic elevator doors. Do, oh. Do you think they're like, whoa. Manual wh- ones were fine. <laughs> Why would you even go to the second floor? Entry 946.IS3821. Certificate number 42734. The placebo effect. Different number of syllables in The Simpsons, but... Sure. But it goes with the song. It's like, um, adventure time, come on, get your plebo accept. Do you do you sing different words to the adventure time theme if they have the right number of syllables? I do. I just do it to drive my kid crazy. Adventure have, time, come on, get your pants. I have a list on my phone of different song rhythms that I will sing phrases to if they come in real life. Oh. And my family knows them all because I annoy them all. I have over 10. Whoa. But you don't consult the list. You're just trying to No, keep... I'm, just tr- I'm just trying to think what, what of these things are that I say. Right. For example, if I hear anything with the, with the rhythm, da-da-da-da, I will think of Particle Man. Particle Man, Particle Man. Like if, like if somebody says, here's the, here's the car, I'll say, here is the car, here is the car. Um, Werewolves of London is the, is the most common one I do. Um, Buffalo, uh, so- Buffalo Soldier is a big one. Anytime you hear da-da-da-da-da. So what is that? An anapest data? What is that? A dactyl? I'm not going to be good at this. Uh, so give me an example of something you would sing to Buffalo Soldier. Um, Dreadlock Rasta. I mean, it's usually a three syllable word and two syllable word. Like, like if we, if somebody said, like, if we're going to talk about Esuit in a second, and and you said this is Elephant Corner, I would say Elephant Corner. Uh, Riders on the Storm, Shapoopy. <sighs> Watermelon Man by uh, Herbie Hancock. Um, Do a shapoopy. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's any three syllable word with the accent on the first or with a second syllable. Right. So, I mean, that's often a. If Mindy says she's going to make a clafooty like that, you know, often the vowel sound echoing will I help. See. Yeah. It's the assonance. Anyway, during the placebo show, I think we talked about the possible combat origins hmm. of these beliefs and the healing powers of the brain, you know, uh, the myth about the soldiers who don't get painkillers but are told they are getting them mm-hmm. and uh and they can lift a car off of their trap child yeah or at least they don't they don't mind that you're pulling shrapnel out of their gut or whatever right um a listener named Christopher had a new, or CJ had a new theory that I had not thought of oh CJ our our stock the guy who sends us stuff about Stockton oh maybe well i changed my mind about this theory, this theory it, it, it has no value whatsoever oh no, I'm just kidding. This could be the best thing ever to come out of Stockton. Oh, you're talking about Stockton, California. I thought you meant yes. John Stockton. <laughs> yeah, we're still talking about NBA jersey son, numbers. Son of Spokane, Washington. <laughs> oh, well, that's right. You're a Gonzaga booster. Yeah. Uh, isn't Stockton kind of a... Gonzaga. Isn't he an anti-vaxxer now? I said Gonzaga, didn't I? I thought you said Gonzaga. I never say Gonzaga. Isn't Stockton a weirdo anti-vaxxer now? I don't follow his whole, his whole uh, catalog. You don't celebrate his whole... No. His whole medical catalog? Uh, and we were talking about how, you know, in battle, maybe you're so adrenalized that you're fine without morphine when when there's a shortage or something. But CJ remembered part of the Eric Remark novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, about right. World War I. I don't, think, I don't think I've read it. You read it? I've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. I reviewed it for our late lamented podcast, Friendly Fire. Ah, it's a good World War I movie. The protagonist is injured in battle. They're going to operate him on. And the soldiers have warned... Uh, the protagonist, whose name I'm blanking on, that military doctor is going to try to use chloroform on him. 
but that you should under no circumstances take the chloroform because at the time it was such a lousy anesthetic that sometimes people would die from misapplication of chloroform. Oh, So there was in the ranks this belief, probably correct, that the anesthesia was a, was a bad scene and you should not take the chloroform. And so the nurse comes over to prep him for surgery and he says, please don't use chloroform on me. Like he, he wants to get the surgery fully conscious. Yeah, leave me dry. And so that might have been the origin for some of these later beliefs up to, up to World War II in Korea about um, soldiers going through surgery without any anesthetic at all. Did they give him like a, like a stick to bite on? That was always the scene that I loved in movies where they didn't have any, any anesthesia, so they gave you a, like a piece of wood. Bite the bullet. It's the yeah. source of oh, bite yeah. the bullet, bite right? The bullet. Although I don't know if I'd want to, it seems like you chip a tooth. Yeah. You don't want, you don't want bullets up there. Well, but I mean, maybe, maybe you bite the soft part of the bullet, but that's lead. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you, oh. also could the bullet like go off if you bit it wrong? Probably not. You think it's unlikely? I mean, you'd have to bite the, no, I don't, I mean, anything's possible. The jaw can exert more force than any other joint in the human body. I don't. I'm not sure you could True. ignite a bullet. Entry 588.PS12101. Certificate number 39582. Jillian Hills. The French yaya singer turned B-movie actress turned Flowers in the Attic book designer. Uh, Mike, I, I, at some point in this entry, we talked about the kind of 60s, specifically 60s era trends of European art movies becoming popular in America because they had boobies. Sexy bits. Yeah. yeah. So people would go to see these nihilistic Bergman movies and uh, just because they had heard that at the at the hour mark, <laughs> um, Michael sent us a story. This episode generated a lot of fan uh, interaction. Well, because you got flowers in the attic. Yep. You got some classic '60s toplessness from Clockwork Orange and uh, uh, Blow Up. And then all and these then wacky got, tunes. And, and then you got the music, which was recently revived in Mad Men, etc. Uh, in 1969, according to Michael's story, and I've not looked this up to see if it's true, but I hope it's true. In 1969, Jim Henson and Frank Oz of the Muppets are uh, writing material for Sesame Street. Uh, at Henson's New York office, and they decide to take a break to go see an Italian sexploitation film called Sweden, Heaven, and Hell that is showing around the block. Now, first of all, I have several questions. Like, should coworkers just skip work to go to a, to go to a porno together? Well, I mean, they're freelancers, presumably, at this point. I mean, I know your boss isn't going to mind, but do you really want to be sitting next to your... Your buddy? I mean, if you think about it, Travis Bickle took... Um, Jodie Foster? Jo- no, not Jodie Foster. <laughs> took uh, uh, Sybil Shepard to oh, a porno right. on a date. But she's not into it. It's that's a plot right. point of the movie that one should... That's a dating don't. That's right. That right? is a dating don't. The movie doesn't end with them happily married. If, well, they, if they had just gone to you know Dave and Buster's or something, that would be a totally different ending to that movie. This was an era when they were, uh, they were trying to put uh, dirty movies forward as like no, this is legit adult entertainment. This is what you, this is what you do if you're a grown up. But still, those those midtown theaters were just places for creepy guys in trench coats. Only later, it only oh. became that later. At so the you time, think it, it would have been respectable 
for two creatives and working in Midtown to go see Sweden, Heaven and Hell? I mean, Don Draper might be there. I think that it would have been just as questionable that you and your coworker were writing dialogue for puppets <laughs> as that you were going in the middle of the day to watch a movie that had some boobies. Imagine going to one of those movies and Jim Henson is next to you in the theater. Well, I've got, I found. At a, least when he has Kermit, you know where his hands are. I found a photograph of Jim Henson. I found it at a thrift store. Uh, standing in the middle of a bunch of early Muppets. And he's very young. Mm-hmm. And the Muppets are not the Muppets we know. Right. Crazy looking Muppets. And it's a real photograph. It's not like a print. I have no idea how it ended up in a, a Renton thrift store. Did you buy it? I bought it and I put it in a frame and I had it on the wall of my house for many years. And I still look at it and think about early Jim Henson. Those Muppets are way more acid trippy than any of the later Muppets. Sure. I mean, he, his whole scene was a product of the counterculture, although kind of earlier than that. You know, he was he was doing square puppet stuff on Ed Sullivan in the early 60s even though I'm sure he was ahead of his time when it came to mind-altering substances. But I feel like if I'd been sitting next to him in a Times Square porno theater in 1969, he would have been, yeah, I would have struck up a conversation with him. I like to imagine him and Frank Oz up in the box seat kind of razzing the movie like Statler and Waldorf. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Look at you. The story gets better. Frank Oz was apparently just uh, happy to enjoy the nudity, but Henson really liked the score of the movie by an Italian composer named Piero Umiliani. Uh, and it inspired him to write a new song for an upcoming Ed Sullivan appearance. The sketch was, you know. Called Love Me Do. <laughs> that song became the Rainbow Connection. No, the, the sketch was so successful that you might have seen it on The Muppet Show. The soundtrack to this to this softcore movie inspired Mana Mana. No, da do 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 do. Like that was kind of a fun because you know it oh, kind of sure. has that fun Austin Powersy vibe of uh, yeah, like Italian maybe, sex. Maybe Swedish bathing beauties uh, could be do, do, could be by do, the do, pool do. when you hear do 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 do. do, do, do. I feel like I've seen that. I feel like mm. I've seen that music done not as a as a Muppet Show thing. How cool. The other response we got to this show was uh, for you, John. You, uh, I think you had said you'd never seen Mad Men, so you were not familiar with the Zooby Zooby Zoo song. I had seen early episodes of the first season, mm. but I didn't get all the way to the Zooby Zoo era. Well, Owen, uh, who also explained NBA numbering to us, wants you to know that you would remember possibly the season seven episode of 30 Rock. Okay. Where Will Forte's character proposes to Jenna. Yes. He is lowered onto the stage wearing angel wings, apparently. I don't think I've seen this episode. And singing Zooby Zoo in, oh. in a nod to the, to the Mad Men scene. Oh, okay. So you're, you're now like a kid who knows all these movies through the Mad Magazine parody only. Yes, yes. I will. You know, I, I, saw, a, I saw a super clip of all of Seinfeld's references to, other, to films. Oh, nice. And uh, and I was like, oh yeah, I get it. Oh right, I got that. I was just explaining this to my son the other day. He thinks the English Patient is a famously terrible movie because on Seinfeld it's a punchline for a certain kind of boring art movie. And and he had just seen Talented Mr. Ripley by the same director. And I said, actually, at the time, everybody thought this was like 
you know, the second coming of David Lean. It's a big sweeping adventure, but with a great emotional core and Oscar winning. All the performances are good. You know, the fact that now it's a punchline, like one of these kind of square out of Africa style movies is totally Seinfeld based revisionism. It's actually a pretty good movie. That's so funny because yeah, I got a lot of flack from younger millennials about the English patient. And I don't remember, I think it was again, we reviewed it for, Friendly Fire, and there was a ton of like, ha ha ha, what a what a dad movie. And I, I don't was like, think they've ever seen it. I thought that was a pretty good movie. I don't remember having complaints about it. Even at the time, I think Seinfeld was a little, there must have been one writer on Seinfeld that thought that movie was a snooze fest. Right. And now the culture has changed. I mean, that's I, w- the, I won't allow it. That's not compatible with Mark. I mean, it's a good thing about Mad Magazine, which always had the same comic take on every single movie and TV show that they parodied. Which would be like, no, I'm complaining because the premise of this movie is is uh, farcical. You know, they would always just do the same joke. I bought a bunch of 70s and 80s Mad magazines for my kid, and she's having the third or fourth remove, which is she's reading parodies of movies that she will never see or even hear of. She's like, wow, they really took down Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> what a what a snooze fest! What a laugh a minute. Entry 591.jb2416. Certificate number 39623. Hobby tunneling. You'll be happy to know we got a lot of mail about your hobby tunneling show. I am happy to know it. Uh, when we, Jason wants us to know that we, we mentioned the, uh, the DC subway system being secretly built by uh, 1A Beach. I don't actually remember this. Mm-hmm. But... I, what I did not know is that there's actually a song about this called Sub Rosa Subway by the band Klaatu. Really? Back in 18... Here, these are the lyrics. Back in 18... Oh, this, wait, this is the New York subway, not Washington, D.C., right? Back in 1870... They just, did not build a subway in 1870 in D.C. Right. I can say that confidently. Back in 1870, just beneath the Great White Way, Albert Beach worked secretly, risking all to ride a dream. His wind machine, his wind machine. So there actually is a Klaatu song about this guy digging his own subway in Manhattan. And it reminded Jason of the popular urban legend about Klaatu, which I had forgotten, which is that this 70s prog band sounded so much like the Beatles that they might actually be the reunited Beatles recording under a pseudonym. And I don't actually know. Let's see if, is this, here's Sub Rosa Subway. By Klaatu slash the Beatles. Back in 1870, just beneath the great white way. I mean, the voice is not un-McCartney-esque, but there's no way that's a Beatle singing that. No. The guitar licks are, could be George. It's not even ELO, it's Klaatu. Oh. It's just gone from ELO to Queen. Yeah. This, just, this just sounds like any other 70s prog group, right? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, um, what, what, uh, Bay City Rollers? It's not fast enough. I think we can definitively say that Klaatu was never the Beatles. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should do an episode on Klaatu. I think they're one of the forgotten gems 
Uh, yeah. Uh, Jason says that is a potential omnibus topic. All the all the Beatles conspiracies. I suspect that both of you are probably aware of that rumor, though through wildly different means. John probably heard it from a colonel, and Ken read it while browsing Usenet. That's that's probably true. Although I don't know how many Air Force colonels are are listening to Klaatu. Klaatu. Probably heard about it through Kurt Block. At some point in that show, I mentioned uh, how Canadians all have a cottage, yes. a, like a, a second little country you mean in cabin. their pants. Oh, <laughs> yes, they all are building a little cottage in their pants right now because I mentioned Canada. Uh, and we heard from Britt from Vancouver who wants me to know that is very much an Ontario thing. Oh, what, uh, they don't all have uh, cottages in Nanaimo? Western, Western Canadians, when asked if they have a cottage, are like, buddy, that's only an Ontario. First of all, who could afford one with British Columbia real estate being what it is right now? But right. also, it's an Ontario thing. He says that um, the name for your little second Canadian country home is the most diverse and predictive a uh, feature of Canadian English. It's extremely oh, really? regionally varied, yes. In Western Canada, you would have a cabin. Yeah. In Northern Ontario, you would have a camp. Oh. But it's in Southern Ontario, where everybody lives, where it's a cottage. In in Quebec, you would have a chalet. That's a little on the nose for them. Yeah. In Nova Scotia, it's a bungalow. So I'd like to thank Britt for setting the record straight on exactly what Canadians call their little weird second homes. In Alaska, it's definitely a cabin, and that includes a th- 3,000 square foot log home. You would still call it your cabin. Oh, anything is your cabin, no matter how. What would we call them here in Seattle? I mean, I know people who have a, who say they have a cabin in the Cascades. They yeah. say cabin. But most of those are kind of little cabins. These aren't fancy, fancy. Right, little A-frames. In Alaska, is it such that any kind of middle-class Anchorage resident could have a, a super nice cabin out there just because land and construction is cheaper? A not? lot of people have cabins, Yes. Because you don't, you don't have to own a car dealership to have a cabin. No, although the people with car dealerships are the ones that have the 3,000 square foot cabins. But yeah, Big Lake is so named because it's a big lake. I get it. And it has cabins all around it. If you go to any Anchorage house and knock on the door and say, do you have a cabin on Big Lake? You've got a 30% chance that they're going to say yes. What are they called, by the way? Anchorageians? Anchorageites? Anchorage against the machines? What are they? Anchoragers? Anchoragians? I don't know if anyone has ever posed this question to me. Anchoragians? We just say from Anchorage. I don't know if there's ever (laughs) been a, if there's a word for it. Anchoragites? If somebody said that, I think you'd get hit with a salmon. You think think they all sound equally weird to you? Yeah, I've never heard any of those. Well, we're going to find out, I think. Anchoragians, no. At some point in that show, you talked about naming cars. Did we, why did we talk about naming, or was it just naming inanimate objects? Why did we talk about anything? <laughs> but specifically related to hobby tunneling, why would we talk about, we talked about, I think, how um, maybe boomers named their cars. Oh. And maybe millennials and up do not. Oh, yeah. And I said, I don't name my cars. No. And you said that you do, but they're no, just named my, Kari and. No, my parents named their cars, I said, but oh, I, right. we've never, I think at one point we tried to see if it would catch on. And it it didn't. It just felt kind of cringy and dumb. Yeah. Maybe we didn't have the right name. Uh, But multiple people, uh, people on the Facebook of all generations were telling us what their cars are called. That's why that Facebook is here. Brittany was listening to that show um, on a trip, on a road trip from Kentucky to North Carolina, and her boyfriend insisted that she tell us that she, even a 29-year-old, a millennial, 
does name things. There, her cars have been named Cameron the Camry, Cedric the Civic, Sawyer the Solara, and currently Ralfonso the Rav. Ralfonso. That's not even a name, is it? I mean, does she say, I'm taking Ralfonso? I, that seems unlikely. Sharky is a 48-year-old, okay, who named their first car Barnaby, their second car Jeanette, and their current car Jacot. I don't know why the French names, but also Jacotte. has a laptop named Estelle and a bike named Chloe. Naming your laptop seems a bit much, right? It does. Because you think of your laptop just as a, as a portal, yeah. not so much as a, a, friend. A, as a friend with an identity. I, I have a friend in Portland whose motorcycle was stolen yesterday or the day before. Oh, no. And uh, it's a motorcycle that's very signature to her. She spent a lot of time building it and customizing it. Stolen by some Portland crackhead. And I, uh, we were texting and I said, hey, I'm really sorry. I know how much she meant to you. Oh, and you then gendered I, the... Well, then I wondered if I had misgendered the motorcycle... Because I don't think she had ever specified that she thought of her motorcycle as a girl motorcycle. And so then I was like, well, now what do I say? Do I, do I write her back and say, Is I'm it particularly fraught with motorcycles because it's an inanimate object you like have between your legs? I don't know. That's a good question. It hadn't occurred to me that way. But like as somebody who doesn't name or gender things, right. I don't know. You know, I think even boats. I think a boat is a she. I would imagine problematic. problematic. I would imagine that the motorcycle was it's kind of, it's not a girlish motorcycle at all. It's a tough tough boy motorcycle, but it is kind of it is sort of sassy girl-ish. I don't like all this gender essentialism in your motorcycle well, theory. I know, I'm very confused by it. And so I just waited, then I didn't know what to do. I waited and then my friend wrote back and said, "You know, thank you so much. It's it's been really devastating not mentioning the motorcycle by gender." And so I'm still a little bit like, I don't know. Was she doing all kinds of circumlocution to not nope. avoid giving a pronoun to the... Nope, nope, nope. But but uh, again, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm just not, I was, I definitely, you know, I'm still thinking about it. And I don't even know if that motorcycle had a name. Mm. I'm really going to have to ride her back and just ask all these questions. I'm did, sorry I gave a pronoun to your motorcycle. Did your motorcycle have permission. a name? Is it? Would you ever say he or she about any of your cars? I would always just say it. It's in the shop. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say he or she. It's weird, right? It is. But people do it all the time. The Facebook group was full of Xers, millennials, uh, maybe even Gen Z types. And, 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 and older, cars. of course. And, and naming them, you know? Yeah, yeah. this is Myrtle. Uh, no, I do not think of things that way. I do not have a... a, a a romance language relationship to things. So oh, I, don't, I see. I don't look and love them. But I don't know if they, I don't know if people who have that convention in their language actually think that way. Like I almost think it's, I mean, we can't say how much. Wouldn't it make you think that way? I guess that's the Saper Wharf hypothesis that it changes your thinking, which grammatical forms you use. Yeah. If a pizza is a girl, you're not going to think, oh, then a kumquat is a. But, but I, don't, I just don't think it affects their outlook on life like they don't it must they don't think of the chair as or a table as having inherently female qualities or being subservient to the couch or or being 
extra sexy. Yeah, or being attracted to it or associating it with other female things. I, I just think Surely it goes. Surely that's in there. Surely the language creates that those pathways. If you in are, your mind. if you speak a Romance language, you're a native speaker of French, Spanish, Italian. We'll even take Romanian or Portuguese in a pinch. Mm-hmm. Let us know whether you think uh, the. What do you call it? The gender of Gendering nouns of nouns affects your view of the object signified. Please, I'm skeptical. Do El Taco Ken takes the nay side and I take the pro side in this debate. I'm a Saper Wharf skeptic. Anyway, mm-hmm. we heard one more note on hobby tunneling from Sharif. If you're worried that he didn't like it, no, oh. he did. Oh, good. Uh, Sharif does like it. But he uh, he sent us a link to a modern uh, hobbyist tunneler. Hobbyist tunneler. Um, if you want to look at his channel, uh, Going Underground Bunker and Tunnel has a series of his digging a secret tunnel uh, things. He's built an underground bunker in his guitar, uh, his guitar, an underground bunker in his garden, and now he's tunneling to connect it to his house and his bunker and his other outbuilding. And he's got a series of crazy videos. And the videos are worth taking a look at if you want to see him dig a tunnel in a bunker and so on, so called, so so forth. But what's really interesting is I think maybe now that hobby tunneling finally has a, a, a spotlight on it mm-hmm. and it's a way to go viral. I've seen a bunch of videos of cool earth moving projects. I wonder if more people are going to start doing it just as a performative act, whereas before it's been very the fun of it for people has been that it's so quiet and secretive and I have my little cave. I wonder if now it's very much going to be share, like, and subscribe. Yeah, the guy in Australia that's that's building the tunnel, watching him do it and the work that goes into it, boy, it's more work than I've ever put into anything. And it does feel like if you're building a tunnel with any kind of survivalist motivation, letting people know exactly where it is and all of its turns and secret hideaways does seem more like you're doing it for likes than to actually defend it in the, in the result of, or in the, uh, yeah. Aftermath of a, of a global apocalypse. I just like time-lapse photography. I'll watch anything happen. If it's happening at a weird speed, like how long do you think you'd, you could watch clouds move across a landscape at fast speed? Like, cause I seriously think it could be, Hours. I would do it for hours. Yeah. Clouds clouds across. I was watching some, something time-lapse uh, the other day where I was like, why did you stop it there? <laughs> right. Like, why? that was exactly when it started to get interesting. Something you, was about to happen. What do you think you're doing? I've tried to do it with my phone. You know how cell phones now have a time-lapse option. Yeah. But you end up just holding your phone up in the air for 20 minutes, and then you, you watch the clouds move across the peak, and you've got like eight seconds of footage and you're like, no, I want, I want 20 minutes more of this, but that would mean holding up my phone for an hour or three. So I was at that uh, train station down by the world trade center one night. Um, the new like train, uh, the, the big fancy, yeah, the fancy mall train station thing. And, uh, it was late at night. I was in there for some reason with a friend and there was somebody with one of those mini floor waxers driving the floor waxer back and forth across the floor of the mall, mm-hmm. nobody else in there. And I was like, what better use for the time-lapse function? <laughs> and so I set it there and I had, you know, I had to hold it the whole time. And I just watched this person 
do what at the time I considered the best job in the world, which is just back and forth on your little mini, mini sweeper. And you don't smoke pot anymore. So no. all, all you have is, is watching floor wax. I was just like, this person is waxing the floor all night. And I just sat there. I was, I was just happy to be there. And then I had this incredible fast motion video of the mini waxer being being driven by this person <laughs> with the Benny Hill music just playing. zoom 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 <laughs> zoom zoom back and forth one of my one of my finest moments so Ken tell me uh, what's uh, what's new in Essowit news well we got our monthly update from the Sheldrick Wildlife Wildlife Trust in uh in Kenya, but um, we actually had several listeners write in about SOIT. Jamie wanted to thank us for supporting the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust and notes that although uh, he, they are not affiliated with Sheldrick, they do donate to them and in fact have adopted two other orphans. Nice. So Naleku and uh, Niam Beni uh, are adoptees of our listener Jamie, and Jamie goes to the Sheldrick Wildlife Facebook page. And often sees Essowit just popping up in pictures and videos. So if you're not getting enough Essowit content in your life, apparently Sheldrick Wildlife Trust has a Facebook page nice. where you can follow his adventures. Why are we not on there? Yeah, I don't know. I should be on there right now. Why are we doing this? Hmm. We should go watch a floor waxer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian also enjoys the uh, all the Essowit content in the last addenda because there we, we talked about Essowit fan fiction. And so forth, and thinks we need to call this segment of the Addenda Show Esoterica. Okay. You seem uh, on board with it. I thought you'd ring your little bell. You're okay with Esoterica? Well, you know, it came from a listener rather than from you. So I'm. I, oh, I, mean, I see. You know, it was sort of. When Brian from Woodenville says it, it was a half hearted okay, but it was, it was okay. Speaking of fan fiction, Brian is imagining that Esoit is such a troublemaker in these stories we're telling that perhaps. So it is biding his time plotting an epic escape from the Wildlife Trust, possibly involving a tunnel and a false elephant made of reeds. Wow. I mean, that would be a very elaborate escape plan. So the keepers are like, Essowit, time to get up. Essowit's still, still in his crib. Come on, what's the matter? Essowit. And then they're like, wait a minute. He's got a whole tunnel hidden behind a, a poster of, uh, of Queen Celeste from the Babar books. I can't think of another hot female elephant. Dumbo's mom? Dumbo's mom. Dumbo's mom's a cutie. Mm -hmm. Finally, this is my favorite bit of esoterica today. Nick sent us uh, an email saying, hello from Kenya. Hello, Uh, Nick. Nick's from Seattle, but he's currently on a trip to Kenya and actually visited the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust and saw Essoit in person and sent us a photo. I think this is no our first way. our first kind of unofficial photo of Essoit in the wild just chilling with the other elephant calves. No way. Uh, and so we'll put this on the Patreon picture on the Patreon page along with the photos of Jobbers Canyon and maybe Smokey the Combat Yorkie. Uh-huh. Uh but this is fantastic. SOIT actually exists. Sheldrick has not just been taking our money all these months. So glad to know it. Uh, the, By the way, just a free plug, Nick recommends, if you ever want to go on safari in Kenya, he says to use Game Watchers because 
they work closely with the Maasai tribe. Oh. They use open-sided land cruisers. I don't know why. Uh, apparently, Game Watchers now sponsors the Omnibus Addenda. But this oh. is a very specific recommendation. Have you ever wanted to go on safari? I've always wanted to do it. I haven't. You know, I felt... As you a, would do it for the clothes. As a family, we had a plan to go uh, up the east coast of Africa, from South Africa all the way up to Kilimanjaro. And we we had this plan all worked out. We were going to do it in the in the mid-90s. And then we had we'd just done a family trip, and it was like, well, maybe we should wait. And we waited. And then the situation in East Africa changed. There are fewer places you can visit now in East Africa. That's true. And we were so, we felt so dumb that we had not done it when, when it felt more doable. Um, and still feel dumb because it has never gotten more doable ever since the end. Well, if you go to the places that are still visitable, which would include Tanzania, Kenya, maybe Rwanda for gorillas. Rwanda's mm-hmm. got good gorilla infrastructure mm-hmm. now. Uh, maybe try Game Watchers and certainly go visit Essowood. Yeah, maybe we should go. I think we were saying that on the last addenda, and I renew my dedication to go visit Essowood in person. Check out, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you can check out the photo of Essowood at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 35. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the omnibus.